This morning, as I said, I want to speak to you about the danger of selfish religion. The danger of selfish religion. What do I mean by that? Selfish religion is worship, uh, is worship of God that is all about you rather than God. It's like what Daniel does. Daniel has been attending a local church for a while. Uh, in fact, five years ago, Daniel said a prayer to accept Jesus in his heart. And it all looked like he was on fire for the Lord. In fact, it looked like he was uh, literally on fire. Uh, he went to every Bible study. He read every book he could get his hands on. But that was five years ago. Uh, today is a different man. The sermon notebook is gone. Uh, he never attends actually regularly church services. He never even attends the evening services. He, he can't even tell you the last time he spent one hour reading the Bible for himself. What has happened to Daniel? Well, what has happened to Daniel is the same thing that happens to many people. You see, although Dan did not realize it at the time, his early excitement about God was not about true love for Jesus. In fact, it was all about himself. Daniel started going to church, you see, because he loved the family feel of the church. He never had this when he was growing up. In fact, he never even had a, 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 a home, a place he could call home. So he longed to be accepted. And so when the pastor one day preached a good sermon and, 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 and said, you know, those who wanted to receive Christ should, you know, say a prayer. And Dan quickly did that. He said the sinner's prayer. Because it felt right. Uh, everybody in the church seems to be up on this. Everybody, in fact, seems to be saying it. And so he said it too. And at first, it looked promising. But you see, it couldn't last. Why couldn't it last? Because there was no hard change in Dan. You see, to Dan, Jesus was simply a means to an end, even though he didn't realize that. With the hand, he was having a family church. And you see, as soon as Dan got accepted in the church because he had said the sinner's prayer, after a while, the old Dan resurfaced. And since then, Dan lunges, lunges in sin, and, and the church is just something he ticks the box on Sundays. You see, Dan no longer does the things he used to do because Dan, from the beginning, had a selfish religion. He was never truly converted. The tragedy is, sadly, Dan cannot repent now. He can't. Do you know why Dan can't repent? Because he thinks he has already repented. He thinks he's already a Christian. And so he's had sermons after sermons, but they do nothing for him. And sadly, many people are like Dan. They are not really converted. They practice a selfish religion. Their faith is no true faith. So, selfish religion is a danger to people who feel that they are converted, but they are actually not. But it is also a danger to people who are genuinely converted. Those of you here who have given truly your life to Christ, it's a danger to you. Why? It is a danger because all of us here who are truly converted face a constant pressure every day to make our worship of Jesus to be about us rather than Jesus. 
The pastor feels that way. I feel that way. I feel that pressure to make everything I do to be about me rather than God. And if you're genuinely converted, you feel that pressure. And the people of God in Judges face is temptation. Now, we've been going through Judges, and, you, and I should just flag out that Judges is divided in two parts, okay? Chapter 1 to 16 is the main book. In fact, when we ended Samson, we ended Judges. It tells the 12 Judges in Israel, okay? And that's it. Chapter 17 to 21 are like annexes to the book, okay? They contain stories. It's like when you're reading a book, there's an appendix, isn't it? And they contain stories that actually don't follow Samson. In fact, the story we are looking at today is even probably just at the start of Judges. They are, they are intended to give a ground level view. So when you read Judges, for example, we read verse 16, that people, you know, we, we read verse 6, which said that people were, you know, living for themselves. Well, the appendices are intended to explain to you what that looked like at the ground level. When the people sinned, what did it look like? Well, go to verse, verse chapter 16 to verse 21, or uh, as in chapter 17 to verse 21. Okay, And the story we are looking at here this morning in Judges 17, verse 1 to 6, uh, is here to warn us about the danger of a selfish religion. The danger of a selfish religion. And the first truth we observe, which is in your outline, is this. People will do anything for comfort. People will do anything for comfort. Notice here that the author of Judges starts off this story like one of those great... Uh, dramas, mystery dramas on ITV. It starts off in the middle. You see, we are in a house in central Israel. We are in the land of Ephraim. And there's a man who lives here called Micah. Look at this one. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. By the way, the name Micah means who is like Yahweh. And this man, Micah, we don't know a lot about him, but what we know is that he's got a lot of older children and that he also lives with his mother. Now, like most houses, I don't know about your house, but from a distance, everything looks normal at night. You know, it looks very nice, pristine, right? But when you step inside the house, we can see that Micah's mom is looking very annoyed. And she's probably even muttering to herself uh, because she has spent the last few days asking everyone where the large stash of money that she had accumulated has gone. She has lost 1,100 pieces of silver. They seem to have grown legs. They have gone missing. And friends, that's a lot of money at this time because that's, you know, wages is 10 pieces of silver. So she's lost 110 years worth of wages. And she's very annoyed about this. She's not just annoyed. This is a superstitious woman. Uh, At this time, they are very superstitious. Uh, She believes she can make evil evil common people by her words. She believes if she gives you a curse, it will land on you. And so what she has done is she has uttered a curse. She has pronounced a curse on whoever has stolen the money. And the problem is that, though, 
The fifth is much closer to home. So she's been saying, whoever well, stole my money, you know, they're going to hell or something like that, or, you know, I wish that evil just comes upon them. May my God punish them severely, or something like that. But actually, she doesn't realize the fifth is much closer to home. It's her own son, Michael. Look at verse 1 to verse 2 again. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. I stole it. Micah has come clean because he's been quaking in his boots as he said about this curse that his mother has pronounced. And I, and I suspect the mother knew, perhaps suspected, that's why she spoke it in his ears. He's quaking in his boots because he's stolen money from his man. Who steals money from their man? Who does this? Well, anyone who loves comfort, isn't it? Micah wants to have a large telly. And a big car, perhaps. Or use this money to invest in a business. I don't know how he thinks his mother wouldn't find out about it. But he's stolen it because he wants comfort. But friends, it's not just Micah who's greedy here. His mother is just as bad. I mean, she loves money so much, she would wish evil even on her own children. Don't miss that. She has wished evil Knowing full well to be one of our kids who's taken it. Why? Because she loves many. She loves comfort. And the truth is that all human beings want comfort. Friends, who here doesn't want a nice, the nice things of life? And sometimes we go to extreme lengths to have the nice things of life. You see, some people like Micah and his mother are willing to sacrifice their family to get ahead in life. They overwork. They overwork. Instead of being with family, they're just pumping in hours of work and work and work. What are they doing? Well, in the name of trying to feed their family, they're actually sacrificing their time with the family. Many people do that. A young woman becomes pregnant. Instead of facing responsibility of being a mother, she resorts to sacrificing the unborn through abortion. People do that. That's a sacrifice of a life in order to maintain your own life. I mean, why are our young people in London killing one another on the streets? Knife and gun violence is gone on. What is that about? Crusader Dick, the commissioner, thinks it's all about drugs. But that's the proximate reason. The answer is that all of these people want what they don't have. They want comfort. Some of our young people even kill just for a relationship. Some kill just to get by. Everyone wants comfort. You see, you see this, we are not so different from one another after all. We express the same design in different ways. First for comfort. And it is all part of a problem that the Bible calls sin. From the pulpit, I was trying to emphasize to you that sin, it's better to understand it as living for yourself rather than God. It's not so much doing bad things, it's actually living for yourself. When you enthrone yourself as number one rather than God. 
Now you're wondering, <laughs> the pastor looks sounds like he's saying there's something wrong with comfort. No, no, there's nothing wrong with living comfortable. In fact, God created us in the Garden of Eden very comfortable, right? The issue is not living comfortable. The issue is that there's everything wrong with pursuing comfort as the goal in your life. Our goal in life must be to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the tragedy, friends, is that many of us not only pursue comfort, many of us pursue comfort not just in the name of our family, many of us pursue comfort in the name of God Himself. And that's the tragedy. And this is what we see in our next observation. The next observation here in this story we see is that we chase comfort in God's name. So, point number one, people will do anything for comfort. And why is that a problem? Because we often chase comfort in God's name. And notice here that Micah has been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. What would his mother... I mean, what would you do if your son did that? Listen to what Micah's mother does. In verse 2. Let's continue. Verse 2 says, And he said to his mother, There were 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Now, we need to ask ourselves, what is the tone of our voice as she says this? I, no, I don't think a tone is like, you stole it. Blessed is my son by the Lord. No, I think that it's better to understand it as, I think she has a soft tone. I think she said that actually with a sense of grief. Because you see, this is a superstitious woman. And she regrets what she has said. We know she regrets what she has said because the statement, blessed be my son by the Lord, is an effort on her part to reverse the case. She has cursed the young man, but now she's saying, no, the Lord, please bless my son now. Let him live. She's blessing God. She's blessing her son in God's name. And we know that she means to reverse the case because she tries to do something extra. What does she do? She tries to make God keep her son by offering God money now. She's now trying to buy God. Look at verse 3. And he restored, Micah restores the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand. For who? For who? For my son. Micah's mother does not care about God. What she cares about is her son to stay alive after she has uttered the curse. Now, friends, the sad thing is that she does not need to bribe God. Her words are sinful, but her son is not going to die, is he? He won't. No. Merely wishing someone to die has no power whatsoever to kill anyone. I mean, if that was the case, I mean, we would all be dead, wouldn't we? I mean, how many people wish us to die, really? I mean, bosses are wished on to die all the time by their staff. Children, sometimes when they're angry, I just wish you'd be dead. I mean, if that was the case, if words could kill people, literally, if words could kill people, all of us would be dead. 
I mean, there will be no President Putin because there is a man who just wish him to disappear. So, words cannot kill people. And I know in some cultures today, we believe that. Where I come from, where I grew up in the village, you know, people believe, believe in cases. Like you could literally curse someone and they could die. And the tragedy is that this thinking of curses has infected the church. It is the false gospel of Kenneth Copeland, T.J. Jakes, Joe Austin, and Paula White. They teach that our faith is a force. And the words we speak have power to create something new. You've heard it said before, some of you. You can manifest things. You can manifest life. You can manifest death. Just like Mrs. Micah believes. They claim you can get health, wealth, and success if you simply have enough faith. You can even cause death. Why? Because they say we are like little gods. One of the leaders of this erroneous teaching says this, as we speak the words of faith, listen to this, power is discharged to accomplish our desires. Beloved, Listen to me very carefully. That is wrong. That is very wrong. You have no power to create anything. You are not God. I'm not. You are not a master of your destiny. God is. Word, faith, teaching is false. Why is it false? Because our faith should never be in our words, friends. It should never be in our words. It should be in God and God alone. He alone controls the power of life and death. It is dangerous. It is satanic to teach that your words can create things. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't work. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it doesn't work sometimes when people do these things. Witchcraft is real. I grew up in a village. But it's still evil. I know you may laugh, some of you kids here, you think witchcraft is not real. I grew up in a village. I grew up in a village. The first 15 years of my life was spent in a village, the one you see on TV. And I know firsthand the power of witchcraft. I was told a story, didn't I, on Thursday that I was given a good gift of a chicken that never stopped laying eggs, right, brother? And I said that by the time I came back from boarding school, it had been sold away. Why? Because the person who gave me the gift was believed to be a wizard. And they just didn't understand why this chicken couldn't, could, could always lay eggs and just never stopped. So there are evil things in this world that are real, okay? And they may, for to some, even be beneficial to them. But just because something works does not make it right, it's still evil, it may still be satanic as it were. And when I became a Christian, I was exposed to this word faith theology. You may be converted, but you can be led astray by it. But the wonderful thing is that those of us who have been in the past sat under such teaching, read books of such kinds, God preserves his children. God never loses his children. And friends, the wonder of it is that as we read the Bible together, this is why I encourage you guys to come to Bible study, to sit regularly under teaching. 
Because as we read the Bible together, as we sit together in the local church, not by spending endless hours on YouTube charlatans, no, but as we sit under God's word preached in the local church, you will avoid these dangers. If you have questions, there's a pastor, a friend you can ask. If you're willing to learn, you will learn because God has deposited these gifts in the church to guard us against such false teaching. And when we come to look at the book of Second Peter later on this year, we'll, we'll go through some of these things. But the main point I want to share this morning is this, that all of us face temptation to turn to God in a way that benefits us. We all face the temptation. It's not just Kenneth Copeland. All of us have the temptation to make God a vending machine. So I want to ask you honestly this morning, ask yourself this question. Why are you in church this morning? Why are you here? Now, some, some may have good reasons for being here. But why are you here? Ask yourself that. Is it Jesus you want? Or is it what Jesus can give you? A job, perhaps. A husband. Well-behaved kids. You know, some mothers only come to church because they want their kids to come to church. And thank God that we have children here sometimes who drag their mothers to church. I know certainly one. Okay, she's not here today, but she does drag her mom to church. And that's a wonderful thing to see. But we need to ask this question. Is Jesus to you simply a means to an end? You need to give a clear answer to that question because chasing comfort in the end corrupts true worship of God. And that's the final observation I want to share with you this morning. Chasing comfort corrupts true worship. So three points. People will do anything for comfort. Why is that a... Pro- How does that manifest itself? Well, we chase comfort sometimes, even in God's name. Why is that a big problem? Because what? Chasing comfort corrupts true worship of God. Chasing comfort corrupts true worship of God. Let's let's resume with Micah. So Micah's mother has dedicated the money to God, okay? But notice what she does. She doesn't give it to the priests at the temple, at the tabernacle, sorry, the temple hasn't been built yet. At the tabernacle in Shiloh, who does she give it to? I mean, it's like saying, look, I'm going to give this money to God. But do you know what she does? She gives it to her son. And she gives it to her son, not just for the son to take it to Shiloh, but for the son to create an idol. Look at Judges chapter 17, verse 3 again. Uh, we'll read verse 3. It says, And he restored the 11 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. To do what? She says to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore, I will restore it to you. Verse 4 says, So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. Some, th- some people think this may be two different idols. Some think it's one. It doesn't really matter. Micah is going to amass in verse 5 more idols anyway. And it says that verse 4 ends and says, It was in the house of Micah. As I've said, it seems that Micah perhaps either already has idols or the remaining money, I guess, maybe is investing in more things. But we know in verse 5 that Micah adds to his collection. Look at verse 5. And the man Micah at the shrine... And he made an effort and now sought gods 
and ordained one of his sons who became his priests. Now, <laughs> the entire story, I think you can make a good case that this story in Judges 17 breaks all the Ten Commandments. I'll leave you that as an homework to see which commandments are broken here. But I just want to flag up that what Mike and his mother have done just in these verses has broken at least the, th- the, three, the first three commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 2 to 5, what does he say? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. They've done that. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself, this is Exodus 20, 25, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. They've broken that, okay? They've created this mental image in God's name even. Look at verse 7. You shall not take uh, the name, this is commandment number 3. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold in guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, they have done this in God's name. I dedicate it to the Lord. They have even hired a priest. Micah has hired a priest. He's ordained his own pastor. He started a church in his house. All in God's name. Friends, the family, out of love for comfort, have become lawless breakers. They have shaped and revised God according to their wishes. And they are just like all Israel. Look at verse 6 of Judges 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. On the surface, Micah's family looked very religious. And he went around and interviewed Micah and his family. You know, he just went around and said, look, how is your walk with the Lord? I think what Micah will tell you is that he knows the Old Testament very well. He will tell you we have a church and it's growing. He will tell you what we've got. We've got a priest here. He's wonderful. And he will tell you I have plans to even recruit a Levite, a bigger pastor to lead us. Everything on the surface looks very well. But as you pause to reflect, you realize this is privatized religion. It is about God. It's not about God and his truth. It is about Micah and his mom, their ideas and preferences. They are not meant to have priests. They are meant to go to Shiloh to worship. But they are doing it in their own home. And friends, this is a tragedy of many people today. Outside, some of you look okay. You look okay. You can talk the talk. You can talk the talk. You look very religious. But God sees your heart. And friends, his opinion is that you honor him with your lips, but your heart is infinitely far from him. Oh yes, you can quote Calvin in your sleep. You can. Zwingli and others. You may even have memorized Psalm 119. But you must ask yourself, is my faith true? Am I standing in the faith? And there is a, the Bible helps us. What is true faith? Well, First John chapter 5, verse 3, 1 to 3. You need to know this verse by heart because it's a measure of what true faith is. 
First John chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. Right? It's in the margin of your Bible. It says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. What John is saying there is that true faith is continuous trust in Jesus as the Messiah, as our loving eternal God, our Savior and King. But that is only one aspect. Because the evidence of a true faith, John goes on to say, is what? Love for God. You must love God. Whoever loves the Father, whoever loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of God. In other words, you don't just love God because the evidence is how much do you love others? Friends, genuine faith and trust is love for God and seeks to obey His command. We worship God for Him, not for us. We have been born again. And we are bursting with love for God, for who He is. And because we love God, we love others. Do you? Do you have genuine love for God, for who He is? People who are truly converted, friends, are born again. They have a deep sense that they are sinners who do not deserve the privilege, oh friends, the privilege of worshipping God. They, they know they don't deserve to worship God at all. You know, we think worshiping God is some favor we do for God. It's an amazing privilege. The King of Heaven has made us His children. And people who are generally born again sense that privilege. They are overwhelmed with gratitude that God has wiped away their sins. And He has opened the living way by His Spirit to know Him. And they are pursuing Christ. Not out of... Listen... Not out of a sense of trying to do something for him, but out of gratitude for him. They can say with Paul, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Jesus is the goal. And it is him they want. People like this have been truly born again. Transformed from within. I'm not saying they are there yet. But their impetus is to live for Christ. They still struggle with sin. They still struggle with laziness sometimes. But they know that they are, they are focused. They want to know him. They want to know him and the power of his resurrection. They have come to Christ and abandoned all for him. Does this describe your faith this morning? Well, if it is not, then friends, come before Christ. Plead his blood to save you from sin. To change you from within. Friends, this is not a matter of debate. You must have genuine faith in Jesus or you're doomed forever. So come to Jesus and he will not reject you. Now some of you do know some, some of this. You know something of this. I know. Some of you sat here want Jesus for Jesus. You are not here for what Beth Moore, you know Beth Moore, wonderful author, you know, what Beth Moore calls a pampered gospel. You're not here for that. You're not following Jesus to be pampered by him. You want him, you know following him is costly. You feel the cost even as you sit here. 
I know this because some of you have lost friends or you have got strained family relationships because you are holding on to Christ. You are carrying the cross for him. I know that. I know some of you are in that situation. You are losing life for Christ. I know some of you are not as rich as you can be because you are always giving money away for the love of Christ. Yes, you could accumulate, but you've chosen poverty for Christ. I know that. I know that. I know some of you, it's physically painful. I know dear sisters that come to this church, at least two of them, for whom it's painful sometimes to come to church. Friends, they don't let snow, keep, little snow outside, they don't let that keep them out of church. I'm not talking about that, sort of braving the snow. It's painful for some of our dear sisters to even come here. It's painful sometimes. You're struggling with your health, yes. And you're braving pain just to be here for Christ. That's so encouraging. So encouraging. Every day you are dying to yourself. You have rejected the pampered and selfish religion of Micah. You have chosen the way of the cross. Emotional pain. Physical pain. Facing all of that for Christ. You know you've lost more by turning to Christ than if you hadn't. You've forsaken all and you're still forsaking all for Christ. Beloved, let this passage encourage you. You are standing in the faith. See this passage as a warning to all of us. The way of Micah is doomed to fail. Because in chapter 18, we see the idols of this world are not dependable. We'll see what happens. Read on. you see what happens to Micah's idols. But you, friend, you have chosen to follow Christ. You have a true God in Christ. He is not made with human hands. So, beloved, hold on to Christ. Keep following Jesus for Jesus. And when the going gets tough and you feel tempted to be disappointed in God or miserable about Christ, Keep looking to the cross of Jesus. And this morning, let the Lord's Supper that we are about to partake encourage you that in Jesus you have what the world cannot give you. You've got a wounded Savior who has been crushed on the cross for your sins. All your past sins, your present sins, your future sins have been wiped clean. As we partake of this bread and wine together, let it encourage you, make you long more for the marriage feast of the Lamb that awaits us when Christ comes in glory. Beloved, there is nothing more glorious, no one more beautiful than our Lord Jesus. And one day we shall see him face to face and live forever with him. Our life in Christ is safe in his hands. So let us keep looking to him and run away from this dangerous, selfish religion. Friends, abandon all for Christ. Press forward in Christ. Amen.